Hey, Jim. Hello, Catherine. Greetings. I'm sorry, that sounded a little formal. Yeah. Do you want to do a casual one? Just be cash, you know? Yeah, whatever. Just be normal. Hello. No, no, no. Hey. Yeah, that was better. (laughs) Anyway, um, so when was this? Was this yesterday? The Surgeon General said that this was going to be a week of sadness. Did you hear this? No, that's grim, but true. The Surgeon General told Fox News Sunday yesterday, he said, this is going to be the hardest and saddest week of most Americans' lives. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor, our 9-11, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country, and I want America to understand. Hmm. So the question I have is, is this going to be the worst week this week? Um, For New York, it would seem that this could be the worst week, yeah. Uh, For other places, no, I don't think they're near the peak. So it's going to be later. Yeah, I mean, not every city's going to peak at the same time. Mm -hmm. And Trump also said yesterday, I think, that we needed to just basically, there's going to be lots of death. He's now acknowledging that, which is good, but uh, I mean, I think, we're we're in this situation where now everybody is aligned on a pretty horrific message, which is that a lot of people are about to die. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like that's the stake setting we could have used at the time when people still felt like they didn't need to social distance. And yeah. we were afraid of talking about that for a long time because it sucks to talk about death. It does suck to talk about death, but that's what we're going to try to do today. Ugh. Um you told me we were going to do something fun today. <laughs> I did not. I, I would never promise that. Um, this is going to be a really hard time. For many people, it is already. And there will be people dying. And I don't feel particularly equipped to know how to talk about that, how to talk to other people about that, um, and how to process it myself. Yeah. So we're going to call Lori Gottlieb. She's the author of the Dear Therapist column at The Atlantic. D-E-A-R. Oh, my God. And she wrote a column last week about grief, and we're going to ask her some questions that listeners sent us. Hi, guys. Hi, Lori. Hi, Lori. Thanks for making time for us. Sure. How are you? Um, I'm, I'm doing well, all things considered. Yeah. How are, how are you guys? How are you, Jim? Uh, I'm just uh, intellectualizing everything, focusing on, you know, critiquing people in power and understanding science. To, to avoid feeling anything? Um, I don't know if that's the primary intent, but it is the function. Mm-hmm. I'm toggling in between panic and sadness and doing what Jim's doing, which is just fixating on consuming information. So that's how we are. Huh. I'm taking a very different approach from both of you. What's your approach? My approach is I, you know, check the news once a day. I see my patients virtually online and I do my, you know, I'm doing a lot of writing to kind of help people through the pandemic. I'm with my family. You know, I think I'm feeling, you know, my anxiety, but I'm not sort of bathing in it. Well, we can talk about anxiety perhaps. Um, But we wanted to first just uh, 
give you our condolences. I know you wrote a, a column to yourself recently. Yeah. So in the midst of the coronavirus, my father died and he did not die of the virus. He had um, complications from congestive heart failure. Um, and we knew that he was going to die in the coming weeks or months. But when somebody dies in the middle of what's going on in the world right now, it's a very, very different experience. It's a very surreal experience layered on top of an already surreal experience. Right. I mean, does it inhibit in some way your ability to process or does it heighten everything? Kind of what is the experience? Well, on the one hand, everybody else is experiencing this one thing, which is people are getting very sick from the virus, people are dying from the virus. And then your person who died, um, you know, it was it was something unrelated. And how do you mourn that um, when all this other stuff is going on? So part of it is that you feel like you kind of can't talk about it because it's not what everybody else is dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then part of it, too, is that you can't have a funeral because of social distancing. You kind of can't have a funeral with other people there. I'm Jewish and we sit Shiva, which means for seven days, normally people would be coming in and out of the house constantly, grieving with you, sitting with you, bringing you food, comforting you, telling stories, sharing memories. It's a really meaningful part of the grieving process. And we couldn't have that, of course. And so you come back from bearing your father and then it's nobody's there. Um, right. You know, people FaceTime, people call, um, but, you know, it's not the same as physical presence. Yeah. Right. So how are, how are people supposed to grieve during this time when all of our kind of rituals of grieving are cut off? I think in the same way that we're all dealing with staying connected during social distancing, which is we do the next best thing. So, you know, we, we FaceTime, I've been doing a thing where I sent out something where I asked everybody to send me their favorite memory of my father. And so it was kind of like, you know, Shiva by email. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and it really made me happy to read these memories, to sit with these memories. Um, and then I know that we're going to have, when we can be around other humans again, we'll have a memorial service and we'll really get to honor my father in the way that we want to. So that's how I'm managing it. Right. What is the right thing to say to someone who is experiencing what you're experiencing during this time? Something very genuine. Um, I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm here for you. And not trying to take away their pain. So people will say things like, he's in a better place now. You know, right. um, mm -hmm. um, well, no, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take away, look, whether he is or he isn't, it doesn't take away the fact that I miss him terribly, Right. that there is a huge hole in my life because I can't call him up and chat with him every day. Like I used to, right. The ways that people will try to make things better for you, as opposed to just meeting you where you are. I think what people really want in their grief is to feel felt. And what I mean by that is they want to feel like someone is sitting with them in their experience. They may not feel the same feelings, but someone is sitting with them in a way that they understand what they're experiencing. I think that's really wise and, and helpful. And I'm sorry that this has happened to you. 
you know, a terrible thing happening in the midst of a, a worldwide terrible thing? Well, thank you. One of the things that I notice now that a lot of people have experienced is that if somebody died unrelated to COVID, um, it's almost like because everything is surreal for everybody right now, the world is not normal right now, and your world is not normal for an extra reason. It's almost, um, you, you don't feel as alone. You mm -hmm. feel like, you feel like, wow, I, my world has been shaken up and there's no normalcy to my life, but there's no normalcy anywhere. There's a collective grief. And I think everybody's grief is unique to them. Yeah. But I also feel like there's also a collective grief that we're all sharing. That was actually something I wanted to ask you, if, if it's appropriate to call that grief or what really grief means. Like, I, I feel sort of like I'm in mourning, but not for anyone specific, but for like life. <laughs> but I don't know how to think about that. Grief is the pain of loss. And it doesn't have to be a death. It's any kind of loss that causes you pain. And so people are sort of minimizing certain losses because they feel like they aren't uh, valid. You know, like you're missing your college graduation and that's a loss and you grieve that. And, you know, but it's not the loss of a life, for example. It's not the loss of a job. Um, and so I, I, I really feel like just as I always say, there's no hierarchy of pain, there's no hierarchy of grief, that, that grief is grief and loss is loss. And, we, you know, we tend to do this with our kids where we minimize their losses. So their ki your kids might say, you know, I'm really missing being with my friends. And the parent might say, but at least we're not sick. And, um, you know, you'll see them soon. <laughs> and as opposed to what, what the kid really needs to hear, which is, yeah, I know it's really hard not to see your friends right now. Mm -hmm. Just acknowledging that it is a loss for your child and, and not to minimize other people's losses, whatever they are. A normal reaction for me to try to contextualize things is because I'm trying to help, help people put things into perspective because that sometimes does help me. I think, Jim, that putting things in perspective is is helpful after people feel seen and heard. Gotcha. So they can't hear the perspective if they feel like you just shut them down. So if you say to a kid, yeah, it's really hard. I know you really miss your friends. And then the kid is probably going to say, yeah, it's really hard. And that's when you can add your perspective. Right. That's simple. That's a simple trick. Yeah, and you can do that, of course, with adults too, with, with anything that someone is feeling a loss around. Um, you know, it's not a competitive sport. I think a lot of people feel like, well, my loss is bigger than that loss or my loss, you know, matters more. Um, some people don't want to hear about other people's losses because they feel trivial compared to what they consider to be their own loss. And I think we need to have more compassion for one another right now and just have compassion for the fact that we are all experiencing some kind of loss. Well, why don't we uh, ask you a couple of questions on behalf of our listeners? We've gotten many that we thought you were most suited to answer. Sure. Yeah. And actually, I think we can do them in whatever order. Jim, you can take one. All right. We have a, a listener question here, a very thoughtful one. Hi. I graduated college last May, and I landed an amazing job that I loved with great people and health care and a living wage. Unfortunately, I was laid off due to COVID. I've fallen into an extremely deep depression from this economic downturn and quarantine, and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm trying to stay mindful, but I guess I'm wondering if there are any ways to stay productive. Does it matter if I'm being productive? Should I just chill out? 
I just feel so completely lost and directionless and can't cope with this. It's not even a real question. I'm just in deep distress. Yeah. So I think it is a real question. I think what she's asking is how to deal with her depression. And one thing she's trying to do is to try to be productive because she doesn't have the job now and she doesn't quite know what to do with herself. But being productive is not going to help her manage the underlying loss. We're going back to grief. This was a huge loss. You know, a lot of our sense of self is tied up in sort of what we're doing every day. The usual, like, here's what I do. Here's who I am. And so all of a sudden she's got this big blank every day when she wakes up, what is she going to do? And what I would say to her is I think she needs to reach out to a therapist um, because I think that this can really spiral down. And um, this isn't the kind of thing that, you know, being more productive, being more productive can help somewhat. But I also feel like she needs to talk to somebody about this loss. She needs to go on psychology today, find somebody in your area, call them up, see if they're doing remote sessions. If not, see if they can refer you to someone who is. And there's also lots of apps um, that do, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it therapy, but, you know, they have therapists who will offer support. I would definitely encourage her to reach out right now before she starts sort of spiraling even more. Mm-hmm. I do wonder about that question about productivity. I I imagine a lot of people, even those who aren't, maybe wouldn't say they were feeling depressed, would be at loose ends for how to deal with this open time. You know, people who are used to accomplishing a lot. Yeah. So let's say that, that you aren't in sort of that deep despair, but you are feeling lost and kind of... Um, How do you deal with the time and what, what are right, you accomplishing? Right. I, yeah. I think it's really important to have some sort of routine and not the routine that you had before. You know, I think a lot of people are trying to replicate that routine and then they feel like a failure because you can't really replicate it. So (laughs) I would say, you know, make a a sort of coronavirus routine for yourself. Um, The night before, I think it's really helpful for all of us to sit down before you go to bed and say, here's what tomorrow is going to look like. And I don't mean over-program yourself. A lot of people are over-programming themselves because they're so afraid of having any blank time. Mm -hmm. Um, getting dressed and showering, really important. Um, make your bed, really important. And um, eat your meals at regular times. Plan, um, you know, what is what are one or two things that you want to accomplish the next day? And that's it, one or two things. Right. You know, that's, um, that's sort of, I think, related to this other question we got about sort of isolation. Jim, do you want to read that one? This one's longer. Are you sure you want me to read it? I'm not sure if I'm good at reading. I'm kind of self, self-conscious. self Well, maybe we should I... summarize. Uh, here, I'll summarize. So this is from a listener who um, wrote in who was concerned about her sister. Her sister is uh, lives alone and is prone to depression, who usually deals with it by, you know, getting out and doing things, but can no longer do that. This listener wrote in because she was concerned that her sister might feel so alone that she would try to intentionally expose herself to the virus just to have a way to get out. And she thought she might not be the only person who is considering that or or is so troubled by isolation that they might be saying, well, I'll just risk it. You know, if you are prone to depression or if you are a really active person and you find self-isolation extremely painful, that you might 
get to a point where you say, well, I can't take this anymore. You know, I'm going to risk going outside because I just can't deal with this. No, no, no. I don't like this line of thinking at all because it's not about you. You know, the social distancing is about you're not just taking a risk of yourself. Right. Well, so so I think what you're looking at this like, um, like, let's say I see a patient who's like, um, you know, I'm going to drink and drive. Right. Yeah. Um, or, you know, they're doing something that that could hurt other people. Right. Oh, because, you know, I mean, one thing to do with people like that, if they could take the sister into their home and then they are an isolated unit and they don't mm-hmm. go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing is to make sure I think we really need to look out for people who are alone during this time. Friends, family members. I know a lot of people have taken in people who are living alone so that they don't have to be alone during this time. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a fantastic idea. And then everybody's quarantined in the house. Nobody's going anywhere. Right. It's helpful not only for the person who was alone, but it's helpful for the people in the family who brought them in because people are so sick of their own families. That is what I'm hearing most right now in therapy Mm -hmm. is, and, and, and people say, well, they should be grateful that they have a family. You know, the people who are alone will say that, Mm -hmm. but it really is challenging for families to have to be around one another 24-7 in ways that are really difficult and legitimately so. And so I think for the family, they are thrilled to have an outsider come in um, and and be part of that unit that mm-hmm. is isolating together. If she's not in the same city, that's more challenging. So that if she's not in the same city, can that sister call other people or have the sister call other people in that city and say, can I come stay with you during this time? So this is an idea, Jim, do you have anything to say on this? I've heard this idea that basically once you have quarantined yourself for two weeks and you know that you don't have it and someone else has done the same, then you can see each other because you know, you know, neither of you have it, but you can basically only see each other (laughs) and not go anywhere else. If you've completely isolated yourself then and you haven't gone outside and yeah, there are conditions you could be in where you both know that you certainly don't have it, but... You'd have to be a pretty remote place to be 100% certain. But yeah, people need some contact. Some some of the epidemiologists recommended early on that couples have like one other couple that they can socialize during a time like this. I'm not sure how widely held that recommendation is, so don't necessarily engage in that. But if we have to be doing this for months, you're obviously introducing risk with every single human that you have any contact with at all, but that at some point there'll be guidelines where you can just be like, you're the one couple that we hang out with. And, well, that's that, that's yeah. right. So that's that's what I'm saying for people who are alone, that who is the other person or family, let's say, what is the other unit um, that has also been isolated and has no other outside contact that you can have contact with? Right. Because it's not healthy to be completely alone for months and months. That is its own issue. Right. Okay. And then the last question for you, this one you've addressed a bit, but maybe we can just get you to to address it head on. This is from Ashley. Jim, you don't want to read it? (laughs) Well, it's a shorter one, so I feel comfortable doing that. Okay. You got it. Ashley, Ashley. Oh, here it is. Ashley. Hi. This morning, my cousin in his early 30s passed away from COVID-19. In addition to the normal grief of something like this, there's an added devastation that we can't hold a funeral for him in the foreseeable future. It's extremely painful to think he was alone when he died, and we now can't come together as a family to mourn him. 
As the number of COVID-related deaths continues to rise, I'm realizing this is a grim reality that more and more families are going to have to deal with. This is obviously quite macabre. But I'm wondering if you guys can discuss this aspect of the pandemic and how people are dealing with it. Yeah, so earlier we were talking about what happens when somebody dies and it's not COVID-related. And I think that what so many people are experiencing right now are the COVID-related deaths. I think people feel like they don't they they don't have a way to honor that person. But on top of that there's this I think feeling that they weren't there for them. You know, they couldn't be there in person. So there's a, there are a lot of people who feel like I wasn't there to, you know, I wasn't there at the most important moment when I needed to be there. There's an added loss on top of the loss of not having the person there anymore and they miss the person and there's all that grief. And then there's the loss of, and we didn't get to have some kind of goodbye that we will never get back, right? right. So what do you do with all of that? Um, and I think that part of it has to do with forgiveness, that I think sometimes the instinct is to blame oneself. Like, well, what if I could have done it this way? Or what if I could have come to the door or the window? Or what if I could have like had them put me on FaceTime in the ICU? Or what if I could have, you know, whatever it is, everybody did their best. And I want people to remember that, that this is unprecedented. Everybody was doing the absolute best they could do. The healthcare workers were trying their best to save the person's life. They were trying to get the family involved. Um, the family was trying to get involved. Nothing was going to work the way that we wanted it to work, right? And so just forgiveness um, and a little bit of self-compassion that, that you did the best you could. I, I think that focusing on what didn't happen is simply a way not to focus on the pain of not having the person there. Mm -hmm. And so I would really advise people to really sit with your grief, not about the guilt and what you did and didn't do and about how things worked out or didn't work out in the way that you wanted it to, but more about here's where you are now. And this is a devastating loss. And how do I deal with the fact that I miss this person terribly? And so I think it's more about integrating the loss into your life mm -hmm. as opposed to kind of getting through it. Um, you know, people always say, you know, they talk about grief and they talk about moving on. People don't move on, they move through it, mm -hmm. but it's still there. And so not to be so hard on yourself about what you're feeling and the intensity of what you're feeling. That's helpful. That seems like it might apply to more the morning of anything right now. This is a period of grief for a lot of people. You've given us some basic toolkits, so a way to think about grief, acknowledging other people's grief, not trying to compare pains or, or rank pain, and knowing that you'll have to integrate it rather than sort of deny it and move on. Right. And I would just say the last piece, like I wrote in today's column um, for parents, but I think it applies to everybody, is you're doing great. We're all doing great under these circumstances. And, and we're so concerned about what should I be doing? Should I be doing more? Should I be doing something better? And my answer to that is you are doing great. Just the fact that you are waking up and you are listening to this podcast um, and, um, you know, trying to eat your meals on time and maybe put on some clothes. You're doing great. You're doing great. Um, thank you for talking to us again. Oh, great. My pleasure. Happy to help. Okay. Thanks a lot.
Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. You're doing great, Jim. That's oh, what I, I'm supposed to tell you. It doesn't. I don't think about. I heard that I was supposed to tell you that. I don't think about that. I think about how everyone else is feeling. Anyway, we'll get into this later. Actually, we should do one where she just psychoanalyzes me. That'd be great. Yeah, diagnoses you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really gets to the root of it. It could be like yeah. a ten-hour app. <laughs> if oh, you'd Jim like to know to more about uh, everything that's been formative in all of my cognitive processes, leave us a review on Apple uh, uh, Apple Podcast Tunes and. You can leave questions for us there. We'll read those. Actually, that's what we should do. Why did we set up an email address? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and or write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com. Genuinely loving reading the emails, even the sad ones. We, I really appreciate getting them. Yeah. And thank you to Kevin Townsend, who's producing today's episode, along with Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. And uh, if you want to support all the journalism we do here at The Atlantic you can do that with a subscription at theatlantic.com slash support us. Talk to you later, Jim. Okay, bye, Catherine. Okay, bye. Stay safe. Yeah, you're doing great.